On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Will she take over the town's cookie factory before he steals her heart? In a Hallmark Channel original movie. They will keep traditional marriage at the core. I do Christmas almost all year round, just sharing the Christmas message. There's gonna be more Christmas. After Christmas, more Christmas. I think to start this episode, we all need to get into the Hallmark Christmas movie mood. And so, just for you, I'm going to describe the entire plot of the record-breaking 2014 Candace Cameron Bure vehicle, Christmas Under Wraps. If, for some unknowable reason, you don't want to listen to this section, you can go ahead and skip to about 10 minutes and 10 seconds and get in to the rest of the episode. So grab one of those extra soft blankets from Target and your favorite mid-priced Cabernet and cuddle right up for a true Hallmark moment. As Christmas approaches, a third-year resident surgeon named Dr. Lauren Brunel finds herself beaten out for the big city Boston Medical Fellowship of her dreams relegated instead to the depressing academic limbo of the waitlist. Not only that, but her shitty little sweater-vested boyfriend has just broken up with her at a dinner she believed would culminate in a public restaurant engagement. But no, not so. You see, Dr. Lauren Brunel just isn't spontaneous enough. She's a workaholic. Her life is planned to the minute. No room for the kind of love that defies all her chilly logic. Sorry, Lauren. It's over. Arriving back at her familial mansion, she speaks to her parents in the parlor. Dr. Brunel's father, Dr. Brunel, has always encouraged his daughter to follow in his affluent workaholic footsteps, but her keenly observant mother senses something isn't quite right and continuously reminds Lauren to live in the moment, telling her you can listen to your mind, but you have to follow your heart. Unsure of her future for the very first time, she spontaneously takes a job in a small town outside Anchorage, Alaska, only accessible by a tiny plane flown by the flanneled town handyman and eligible bachelor, Andy Holiday. They fly shakily over these terrifying snowy mountains, the kind where if they crashed, they would never be found and would have to survive by any means necessary. It's as if the Andes plane crash incident never even happened, which of course, in the crystalline Hallmark universe, it didn't. 
safely and calmly, they descend into this small town called Garland. And Andy, somewhat smugly, questions Dr. Brunel's big city personality and her noteworthy lack of Christmas cheer, which she soon discovers overfloweth in this small town, blanketed in snow so pristine that one has to wonder if dirt even exists in this alternate plane. She's immediately confronted with that small town attitude. No fancy espresso drinks here, lady, but we got all the hot coffee and all the plain white sugar you could ever want. Here in the single restaurant in town, Hattie's Diner, that has long sat beside the only general store in town. As Andy explains, in Garland, things may not be fancy, but they have everything they need. Dr. Brunel, however, has not yet shaken the snoot of the city from her laughably thin coat. When Andy walks her to her stunning little rustic cabin where she will be living, she sighs. This will have to do. Later at Hattie's diner, she meets Andy's suspiciously jolly father, Frank Holiday, who literally only eats plates of brightly frosted cookies. She discovers that he founded the remote town and built a business called Holiday Shipping, with a factory providing most of the jobs in the area. Though, what they do seems to be a strange garland secret. When Dr. Brunel begins her stressful tenure as the single doctor in town, she becomes a bit of a celebrity, with even the garlandites she has never met greeting her as she shuffles through town on the pristine sidewalk. Hey, Doc. Ho, Doc. How you doing, Doc? Even Andy calls her Doc. At his request, she also begins a mission to get Andy's ailing father in healthier shape, first demanding that he begin to eat more than just frosted cookies, to which he protests in a huff. As Dr. Brunel settles into her new role, she is charmed by this quieter, friendlier life with a new possible beau a man she finds out was once a workaholic himself, an architect in Seattle who gave up the rat race to return to his hometown. Like Lauren, Andy has to decide whether he is staying in his hometown to keep his aging father's business alive or return to his big life in the big city. Then things get a little weirder. She starts seeing things out of the corner of her eye, what she thinks are elves skittering outside holiday shipping. But upon asking what the fuck is going on, the increasingly kissy-eyed Andy does a little flirty gaslighting. Then they do a little almost kiss, but then Lauren's old life flashes before her eyes and she flips out and decides she's got to get back to her big time career plans right now. As emo Andy drives her to his plane, they start to say their sincerest goodbyes. But wait, 
an urgent call. There's a medical emergency back in Garland, and they need her right now. He arcs the car around and speeds through the town. But when they get to the emergency, it is an injured reindeer leg. And Dr. Brunel is like, seriously? And Frank Holiday is like, I need him healed by Christmas Eve. And she is like, why, Frank? And he's like, for the Christmas Eve festival. And she's like, okay. And then Dr. Brunel finds out that the fellowship of her dreams in Boston is hers. And she tries to leave again. Then another call. Frank has collapsed. It's his heart. Lauren comes to his aid. He begs to be discharged in time for the Christmas festival. And he tells his dad he will stay in Garland. Then Lauren's like, you know what? I also need to follow my heart like my mom said, even if my dad is disappointed in me. She triumphantly returns right into the town festival and under strings of colored lights, beside glittering expanses of snow, her and Andy kiss it out. BF and GF forever now. Because guess what, everybody? Dr. Brunel is staying in Garland. Townspeople, you shan't be doctorless in a hamlet, only accessible by a two-passenger plane. But wait, there's one more surprise. Andy's dad, Mr. Frank Holiday himself, pulls up in a reindeer-drawn sleigh for the culmination of the town Christmas Eve festival. And then with a little look like, dink, he takes off into the fucking sky. What? The end. Is this place for real? <laughs> That's Garland for you. Let's get this show underway! The star of Christmas Under Wraps is Candace Cameron Bure, Hallmark's former Queen of Christmas, also a major Christian influencer with her own clothing line, a shop full of spiritually inspirational products, and of course, a whole bunch of cozy Christmas-themed products for adults. She sells through partnerships with QVC, Dr. Lancer's anti-aging products, and Dayspring, where she has her own line of Bibles that come in what the Wall Street Journal referred to as beachy colors. She's also spent time as the star-kissed tuna spokesperson, who's appeared in commercials alongside their longtime cartoon tuna mascot, Charlie. In one ad, he floats beside her on the red carpet, both posing for the cameras when she gets a little hungry and pulls a convenient on-the-go pouch of snack tuna from her designer clutch to give her that little boost she needs. But zooming out, we realize that she's just casually eating mutilated tuna beside her tuna friend or perhaps her tuna date. It isn't made clear. But before she put the star in star-kissed tuna, she was known as the tween-turned-teen DJ Tanner on the massively popular 90s sitcom Full House that ran for eight whole seasons and provided family-friendly entertainment that all ages could enjoy together. She continued to have success with this family-friendly brand, working as Hallmark's major star for 
15 years. But recently, Candy Cane Beret has announced her departure to produce and star in more overtly faith-based programming on the Great American Family Network, Hallmark's newest competitor. Due to the timing of this announcement and the wording in her explanation, many determined that she was leaving because the network had started to use storylines that didn't align with her beliefs about gay relationships. When asked if the Great American Family Channel will include gay couples, she responded that she believes that they will, quote, keep traditional marriage at the core. She also claimed that Hallmark was, quote, basically a completely different network due to changes in their leadership. These changes came after Hallmark faced a major backlash in 2019 for pulling a Zola wedding ad that featured two women kissing at their marriage ceremony. A conservative group, One Million Moms, took issue with the ad campaign, and more than 40,000 people signed this petition, telling Hallmark the ad did not align with the network's, quote, family-friendly content. That pressure from the infamous fundamentalist organization One Million Moms, or as GLAD refers to them, One Meddling Anti-Gay Mom, was enough for then-CEO Bill Abbott, who pulled the ad, hoping to quietly avoid controversy. LOL. Of course, social media caught on quickly, with many blasting the homophobic decision, with others praising Hallmark for standing up to the greedy Grinch of winter wokeness. So, despite the desire to remain as apolitical as possible, Hallmark was embroiled in a heated debate about exactly what it hoped to avoid. And then Bill reversed his decision about the ad, especially after Zola said they'd be taking their business elsewhere if these were indeed the values of the company. One million moms made their public response, citing a Bible verse to support the notion that homosexuals deserved to die. It was all a big mess. Just a few months after the controversy, Bill Abbott officially resigned as CEO, not due to the scandal, he said, but rather a coincidence of timing. He played no small role in the roaring success of the channel and has been given credit for spotting the potential of the made-for-TV Christmas movie market and then leaning in with full bravado to incredible, unprecedented ratings. Back in 2009, the channel premiered 21 new movies under his guidance, 33 in 2017 and 38 in 2018. This year, they're producing 41, but they're doing so with a new leader at the reins. Hallmark, aka Crown Media, appointed Wanya Lucas as their new CEO in 2019, and she came in with a very different vision, one in which the channel would tell far more stories from perspectives other than Hallmark's Hallmark Straight White Christian Christmas, and that they would change the tradition of the 
friend of color who disappears at 15 minutes in, hoping to scrub away the hollow corporate attempts at diversity. Representation is one thing, making sure that people see themselves and, and hear themselves, but also trying to move from that to cultural authenticity. Black people in New Orleans are not like Black people in Brooklyn in terms of their culture, the culture that they live within, um, how they may celebrate different holidays. I mean, there's a cultural nuance that, that transcends race and it transcends gender. Candace Cameron Bure made the decision to follow her longtime collaborator to the Great American Family Channel, where he is currently the CEO. That's right, Mr. Bill Abbott. She said of the reason for her move, quote, I knew that the people behind the great American family were Christians that loved the Lord and wanted to promote faith-based programming and good family entertainment. She said she wants to break the hallmark mold and tell more spiritual stories, denying that she left out of homophobia, blaming the media for twisting the story to manufacture conflict, and expressing her love for all of God's people. Candace didn't explain why Great American Family won't feature same-sex couples, but said, quote, I am called to love all people, and I do, adding, I had also expressed in my interview, which was not included, that people of all ethnicities and identities have and will continue to contribute to the network in great ways, both in front of and behind the camera, which I encourage and fully support. This is not the first time that she's come under fire. She also argued vehemently with Raven Simone on The View on behalf of that wedding bakery who refused to serve a same-sex couple. None of this really comes as a surprise to anyone who's followed the trajectory of the Cameron siblings. Candace's big brother, Kirk, child star of another 90s sitcom, Growing Pains, became a born-again Christian at 17 after living as a self-described teenage atheist. And almost overnight, he began demanding changes to the scripts that he deemed inappropriate under his strict new sensibilities. He would go on to become a kind of fringe media prophet of aggressive Christian fiction, starring in the apocalyptic book-turned-movie series Left Behind, and even producing his own 2014 film called Saving Christmas, which is exactly what it sounds like. Kirk Cameron has always been far more forthcoming about his views on homosexuality, whereas Candace has tried to toe that line a lot more carefully, not unlike Hallmark itself. Hallmark Christmas movies have always been most popular in conservative areas, in the Midwest, in the South, in the general heartland. But it was in 2016 that the network got a very noteworthy ratings boost, the only entertainment channel that year to achieve a growth percentage in the double digits. One can actually hold up the 2016 Republican presidential election voters map, and it matches pretty perfectly to the swaths of major Hallmark Christmas fans. 
But that does not mean that the rest of us can't enjoy the heck out of these movies, very much including queers like me, whether sincerely for the simple warmth they can provide or for their exceptional corniness, their cheesiness, the way you can make a drinking game from their ever-repeating tropes, the surreal lines and line deliveries, the way you can spot all the gay actors trying to act straight, the way each one feels like it could be a horror movie if you just put different music under the scenes. In fact, they often verge on being campy, like drag shows of the perfect American dream. I mean, just listen to what this anonymous employee told Bustle in 2021, quote, Many Hallmark films were birthed by producers sitting in a conference room, spitballing catchy movie titles, and then working backward to shape a plotline around the title. If they came up with a title they liked, say Christmas on the Rocks, for example, they'd send me to surf the web for a family who rock climbs every Christmas, or a rock star who falls in love with a caroler. It was like writing a punchline before a joke. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, Back to the show. Hallmark's target demographic is women ages 25 to 54. And tugging on the heartstrings of Gen X and millennials with 80s, 90s, and 2000s nostalgia, well, that works pretty well on viewers no matter what their values are. 
Like most big companies, they know that this nostalgia sells. And they've been selling back to us, the sitcom kids, we grew to really know on TV when we sat cross-legged on the carpet with the friends we pretended they were. On Full House, as mentioned, Candace Cameron Bure played DJ Tanner, the daughter of the lovable doof and sad-eyed widower Danny Tanner, played by the late Bob Saget, RIP, who was raising his three girls in San Francisco with help from his brother-in-law and his best friend. When it came to his huffy oldest daughter, DJ, well, she always found a moral lesson at the end of the show, sitting on the edge of her bed. DJ's little sister, comedic genius Stephanie Tanner, was played by Jodie Sweeten, yet another Hallmark darling, clocking in at five movies, with two coming out this year. And then there's Lori Laughlin, who played Aunt Becky and has been a reoccurring star on Hallmark before she spent two months in prison for her part in the 2019 nationwide college admissions scandal, but nonetheless has been quietly returning to the channel. Noticeably absent from the Full House Hallmark grab bag are the unfathomably iconic twins Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, who together portrayed youngest daughter and precocious toddler-turned-nine-year-old Michelle Tanner. Instead, they live a low-key life of high fashion, far away from the Christmas movie industrial complex that could have been their logical fate. Seeing as they spent so many years basically forced to pump out Hallmark-esque movies for kids and teenagers, I just wanted to take my chance to mention them. And who could forget dear Winnie? Winnie Cooper, the lovable girl next door in The Wonder Years, another late 80s, early 90s show about suburban life in the late 1960s. Winnie was played by Danica McKellar, who is now starred in 15 Hallmark Christmas movies. Lacey Chabert, a.k.a. Gretchen Wieners in Mean Girls, has become a Hallmark nice girl with more than 10 titles under her belt. Her former co-star Jonathan Bennett, who played Aaron Looks Sexy with His Hair Pushed Back Samuels, is also a repeat Hallmark prince. Tiffany Thiessen of Saved by the Bell, Tori Spelling of Beverly Hills 90210, Tamara Mowry-Housley of Tia and Tamara, Patrick Duffy of Step by Step, James Vanderbeek of Dawson's Creek, and Chad Michael Murray of One Tree Hill. You get the picture. Along with casting former child stars, the channel also adheres to a strict nine-act structure that very often features a beautiful and neurotically driven career woman from the big city who leaves behind an unlikable business boyfriend and then has to live temporarily in a small town for some themed reason. She is clearly lacking the Christmas spirit when she arrives in a town stricken with Christmas. 
Then comes a little meet cute with the handsome handyman or baker or Christmas tree farmer who's often a widower with a child. Shockingly, Hallmark doesn't shy away from mentions of spousal death. Then the woman and the man do an almost kiss, but then they're interrupted by some version of a big business force coming in to destroy whatever family-run joint is the heart of the town. But then the community bonds together to vanquish the modernizing forces, and the woman and the man finally kiss, but just once as she begins the process of tapering her ambitions to focus on family values in this small town, on the little things, the things that matter, the things that might be magic. So now that we have our stars and our plot, we need our set. Despite the implicit Americanness of these movies, they're almost always shot in the cutest Canadian small towns they can find, the producers sometimes going on actual road trips to find hidden gems with that perfectly quaint downtown look. It's simply cheaper to make movies in Canada. It's also common knowledge that if you are a screenwriter, don't even try to pass the execs a script that isn't absolutely caked in immaculate knolls of bone-white snow. It's an unspoken rule that there always has to be snow, and each movie is actually allocated a budget of $50,000 to make that happen. Because most of these winter movies are actually shot during summer days, so the snow is mostly made of fabric snow blankets, fire retardant foam, crushed limestone, ice shavings, and soap bubbles. This also means that the actors are forced to wear jackets and scarves and hats and mittens in the heat of the sun, which can hit 100 degrees in some locations, while still keeping two mittened hands wrapped around a steaming mug of scalding hot chocolate. The shoots usually take 15 days and cost $2 million a pop, with screenwriters getting about $50,000 per script, same as the snow budget. These costs are not very high when you consider the $150 million the network makes in ad revenue during November and December alone. Specifically trained set designers also come in to make sure the films have that patented Hallmark feeling, just jamming as much Christmas as possible into every single frame. Characters have to have special Christmas bedsheets and special Christmas hand towels, wreaths and Christmas lights inside, including in the bathroom, enormous trees covered in fat snakes of garland, and ornaments the size of a human head. Since producers know that many people keep the Hallmark Channel playing in the background during the Christmas season, they try to make it so that at any given moment that the viewer passes the television set, they will be stunned by the joy, pacified comfortably to their very human core, with sugar plums dancing in their heads, along with that mid-priced Cabernet. Am I right? 
It's very clear that these movies are family-friendly. That point has been driven home. But if we remember their target demographic, it ain't the kids they're trying to draw in. You see, these adult-targeted movies have more Christmas magic in them than I personally feel comfortable with. It seems like someone's dad always turns out to be Santa, or Santa is the mysterious eccentric who had wandered into the characters' lives to make some kind of domestic magic happen, like in the case of Matchmaker Santa starring Lacey Chabert, actually meddling in the affairs of humans to make them fall in love by just touching his nose slyly with a little dink. Often, just like in Christmas Under Wraps, these Santas shoot into the starry black sky with a full fleet of reindeer at the conclusion of the film. The main characters always receive this news with a gleeful little gasp, whereas I would scream as my very concept of physical reality was torn violently in half. Not in Hallmark Town, just an excited exclamation from the residents and a hundred little side smiles at the sky. Uh, Dad really decided to get into greeting cards instead of postcards because although postcards had been a means of communication, they, he thought they were getting uh, dirty in content and uh, would not serve the purpose of social communication foul language and what was then nude-looking women, which were today would be considered completely clothed, of course. But um, it was not aiming in the right direction as an industry, and I think it's proved to be right. Back at the turn of the 20th century, when Hallmark was just a twinkle in the eye of an uncommonly entrepreneurial child, there wasn't a lot of Christmas magic to be had by unrich kids who also did not enjoy such frivolities as playing, but instead got to work straight out of the womb, especially if they were living with single mothers like little Joyce Clyde Hall was. Known to his familiars as J.C., the boy showed his talent for business early, starting his career at the robust age of eight years old, selling makeup and fancy soap door to door for a company that would eventually become Avon. At 14, he met a Chicago salesman who convinced him to enter the brand new bustling postcard industry, and he and his brothers scraped together their teenage life savings, coming up with $540 to found the Norfolk Postcard Company. Lucky for these boys, postcards were becoming a full-blown craze in America. By 1902, mail was suddenly being sent out and also delivered straight to the front doors of Americans, including those in rural small towns, where between 1905 and 1909, there was an 850% increase in outgoing mail. 
As World War I boomed and took young men and fathers away from their families, the demand for this kind of loving communication was unprecedented, and the Hall brothers would soon open a new company to keep up with the demand. In 1928, they began calling their ever-expanding business Hallmark, and the term Hallmark Holiday soon entered popular vernacular. Through the middle of the century, Hallmark continued to grow at an unprecedented rate, with the boys opening stores all over the country and popularizing the revolutionary greeting card displays that have become a staple of grocery and drugstores all over the world. By the 1940s, Hallmark was printing one million cards every single day. But J.C. had a bigger vision than just greeting cards. In 1950, he wrote to his sales team, quote, Dear fellows, we're going to try our hand at television. And on Christmas Eve 1951, the Hallmark Company partnered with NBC to create the very first live opera written specifically for television. They commissioned Italian-American composer Giancarlo Minotti, a longtime American resident and pretty open homosexual, to come up with an original idea for the special. Inspired by his own Santa Clausless childhood in Italy, as well as what he saw as an oversaturation of a commercialized, santified holiday, he wrote A Mall and the Night Visitors about three kings on their way to see the child. Millions of Americans tuned in to watch this opera live, and by the next morning, millions more would kick themselves for missing the live show as stories of its success dominated newspaper headlines, including the front page of the New York Times. Though other productions had appeared live during Christmas time, there had not yet been a tradition, and a mall and the night visitors became just that. They aired the same opera year after year, sometimes with returning cast members, sometimes with new performers as well. We can look at this as the first televised Christmas movie tradition. The success of the opera led to J.C.'s idea to create the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which broadcasted classic theater adaptations of Shakespeare and John Steinbeck and Willa Cather and August Wilson. Of the 200 productions they put out over the next several decades, Hallmark received 81 Emmys, nine Golden Globes, and a whole bunch of Peabody and Christopher Awards. J.C. retired in 1966 and handed the company over to his son, Donald Hall, who continued to pump out these classy TV specials until, well, America stopped being interested. 
The first CEO outside of the Hall family was Irv Hockaday, who made some major changes to the company's direction when he took over in the 80s when Reagan-era Christian conservatism influenced family-friendly sitcoms like Full House, like The Wonder Years, like the cheesy after-school specials that would in turn deliver Hallmark its future stars. Then in 1992, Hallmark merged with infamous fundamentalist Reverend Jerry Falwell Sr.'s American Christian Television Service, and with another called Vision Interface Satellite Network, which was all renamed the Family and Values Channel. By 1999, the channel was taken over by Hallmark and the Jim Henson Company and became geared toward kids with Muppet content, as well as original miniseries like Gulliver's Travels and Merlin, right alongside a whole bunch of Christian broadcasts. But by 2001, the company bought the entire network and the Hallmark channel was born. Over time, they started to trim back the explicitly religious content to make the network palatable for a broader audience while still trying to honor similar values, towing the line. Sergeant Cullen received a card from our admirers back in the States that sent him on a journey. Oh, do you have family in town? I'm just passing through. To find his destiny. You think it's a little odd that a grown man would travel this far based on a card? One simple act will change two lives. This card brought him to Nevada City? No, you did. Edward Asner in a Hallmark Channel original movie, The Christmas Card. Hallmark put out their first major movie production in 2006 called The Christmas Card, which centers around a young soldier stationed in Afghanistan who receives a mysterious card in the mail from a mystery woman and becomes determined to find her when he returns home. The Christmas card was an absolute smash, with 5 million viewers tuning in, a record-breaking moment for the Hallmark Company. After seeing the success of this feel-good, mildly patriotic romance, the landmark Countdown to Christmas officially began on the channel, with original movies airing every day from October 25th all the way until early January, under the instruction of CEO Bill Abbott. The holiday made-for-TV movie Industrial Complex had officially kicked into gear. Year after year, Hallmark raked in more and more of that cookie dough, slinging out more and more half-baked treats, like 2016's Christmas Cookies, set in the town of Cookie Jar, where a cookie businesswoman is sent to buy and shut down the local cookie factory to replace it with a corporate cookie chain but instead she falls in love with the factory's owner and decides, yes, her heart belongs in Cookie Jar. It takes a little bit of love to make something really special. Christmas Cookies on Hallmark Channel. More after this. And now back to the show. 
Where is everybody? Oh, is there something great showing on TV? Premieres Sunday, November 26th at 8 on Lifetime. Of course, other networks were monitoring Hallmark's merry, meteoric rise to Christmas success, and they were looking for new ways to compete. Second to Hallmark in the made-for-TV movie industry is the company's evil twin, their cooler cigarette-smoking cousin who seems to know everything there is to know about serial killers. You know, the far more gritty Lifetime Network, which is always specialized in tantalizing tales of suburban murders and wayward teenagers. But when it comes to Christmas movies, Lifetime has actually been in the game even longer than Hallmark, starting all the way back in the late 1990s. They too have used many familiar stars from Gen X and millennial childhoods, crowning their own Candace Cameron Bure in the moderately conservative Christmas queen Melissa Joan Hart of Clarissa Explains It All and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, who now stars in as many as three films a year. To be honest, I like her movies a lot more, especially Holiday in Handcuffs, which is an absolute delight. Though Lifetime saw more and more success with their growing slate of Christmas movies, Hallmark remained confident. Until a far bigger company with far deeper pockets darkened the doorway of their corner office. In the year of our Christmas movie wars, 2017, Netflix released A Christmas Prince, which was a total knockoff of another subgenre of Hallmark movie not yet mentioned, Regular Woman and Royal Man Fall in Love. It was a smash hit, leading to A Christmas Prince 2 and 3. Lifetime and Netflix not only took note of Hallmark's winning formula, but also of its blind spots, as a growing chorus of tweets called out Hallmark's character limitations, like the fact that they had never had a black lead in any of their movies and nary a gay to be seen. The Christmas movie wars were raging as Lifetime and Netflix went for the company's jugular when they spied with their little eyes something beginning with D. That's right, diversity. Lifetime offered up gay leads in 2020's The Christmas Setup, in which an uptight lawyer from New York goes home to visit his mother, Fran Drescher, for Christmas, where he reconnects with his high school crush and then has to decide whether to choose this new small town life or take the promotion he was offered in London. Then Netflix countered with The Happiest Season, starring Kristen Stewart playing a woman visiting her girlfriend's super-rich family house for Christmas, who's told only moments before that she has not yet come out to her parents and they have to pretend to be friends for the duration of the trip. And of course, stressful but hilarious hijinks ensue. Hallmark also offered up gay characters in 2020's The Christmas House, but it's never explicitly stated that that is what they are. 
But this year, Hallmark has finally caught up with the premiere of their first gay leads in The Holiday Sitter, starring the openly gay Jonathan Bennett, aka Mean Girls' Aaron Samuels, as a workaholic with a handsome neighbor. And hear this, Hallmark has even been putting out Hanukkah movies, like 2020's Love Lights Hanukkah, starring Mia Kirshner, aka Jenny Schechter from The L Word, and Ben Savage, also known as Corey Matthews of Boy Meets World. That's a couple I never thought I'd see. Where Lifetime had been making Christmas films with black leads since 2013, it took Hallmark until 2018, when Jerrica Hinton starred in Memories of Christmas, in which she plays a workaholic who falls in love with a professional Christmas decorator. Under new leadership, they're now putting out four or five a year with black or biracial couples. When it comes to diversity in real life, Wanya Lucas is quick to give credit to the many people at Hallmark who had long been pushing for more diversity before she got there, and the very diverse group who have always worked behind the scenes. If you think these movies are written exclusively by a group of Christian goody-two-shoes doped up on whimsy, you'd be wrong. Tippi and Neil Dabrowski are a Jewish couple who've written over 30 made-for-TV movies, mostly for Hallmark. Prolific Christmas king Ron Oliver is openly gay and has had multiple number one hits on the channel, also directing Netflix's Falling for Christmas this year, which included Lindsay Lohan's triumphant return. It's fantastic. Ron also directed the horror movie Prom Night too, and he used to work on Are You Afraid of the Dark, including on two of my favorite episodes, The Tale of Laughing in the Dark and The Tale of the Ghastly Grinner. A surprising number of Hallmark writers, directors, and producers also work in horror, including Peter Sullivan, who directed Christmas Under Wraps. But we'll learn more about that next week. All of this is to say that the heart of each Hallmark movie may not be as conservative as we would assume. Even the writer and director of the first traditional Hallmark Christmas movie opera was gay. But prior to the Christmas movie wars, all of this was happening behind the scenes, hidden away from an audience that might flee at the first sight of such liberalized corruption. There is a major conflict at the heart of the majority of these movies, an age-old clash between the big city and the small town, which both have their loaded political meanings. If we take another look at that postcard craze of the early 1900s that buoyed J.C. Hall into the annals of business history, 
we can see that the scenes that appeared most often on the cherished cardstock were of mistletoe, Santa Claus, sleighs, but also of snowy churches, bucolic countrysides, and small town main streets, just like little old-fashioned Hallmark movies frozen in a single frame. But the postcards almost never showed images of the city. During the time of the postcard craze, people in rural areas had been hit hard by the Industrial Revolution that left farmers and family-run businesses in shambles. Out of necessity and a hope for a better life, the children of these small towns started moving away at unprecedented rates to look for factory jobs in faraway metropolises. And by 1910, the total population in American cities actually surpassed the total rural population. It was hard for families to cope with these losses while also facing the powerlessness that many felt against modernization. According to historian Daniel Gifford, author of American Holiday Postcards, Imagery and Context, rural Americans were, quote, circulating an idealized version of themselves. Political science professor Paul Musgrave wrote in 2020, quote, What Christmas movies show is that the world Americans want to live in isn't the world they've made. Most Americans live in suburbs, but holiday movies exist in a world of small towns. Most Americans work in low-status service jobs, but holiday movies promise that fulfilling work is just one true meaning of Christmas away. Giant corporations loyal only to profits dominate the real economy, but Christmas movie economies run on small businesses deeply embedded in their societies. I think it's fair to say that a good chunk of us, no matter who we are, are dealing with a serious sense of disillusionment, as pointed out in the essay, Nostalgia Relieves the Disillusioned Mind, published in 2021, quote, Disillusionment arises when life experiences strongly discredit positive assumptions or deeply held beliefs. Under these conditions, people feel lost, confused, disconnected from their social environments. However, the past can provide solace as a refuge of meaning and social connection. Indeed, nostalgic reflection is a commonly cited source of meaning in life. Lifetime, Netflix, and all the other streaming services have certainly seen success with their own holiday movies, but they know that it's probably impossible that they'll ever beat out Hallmark because of their century-old brand that evokes nostalgic feelings in a great deal of Americans. They know that Hallmark basically owns Christmas. They literally invented wrapping paper. But no matter how our heart feels about them, they are still a mega corporation with a bottom line. And those of us who fall under the super fun banner of diversity see ourselves either being a liability to profits or a chance to leverage an untapped 
market. It's not much more complicated than that. Back when former Hallmark CEO Bill Abbott was under fire for that gay wedding ad controversy, he told a journalist that their movies were, quote, your place to go to get away from politics, to get away from everything in your life that is problematic and negative, and to feel like there are people out there who are good human beings that could make you feel happy to be a part of the human race. It seems that getting away from politics now requires getting away from each other. This sentiment, the dedication to making family-friendly content that is safe for the family, implies that by virtue of being seen strolling down a snowy main street, we are some kind of threat to families. These channels' dedication to staying apolitical also means that we can't exist apart from what our life means to the narratives of the culture and business wars. When asked why he is so good at what he does, Hallmark director Ron Oliver told the LA Times, quote, I think it's because I understand that under all of the ridiculously commercialized nonsense, the bright colors and the sparkling lights we wrap the holidays in, it's always about heart. Every Christmas story boils down to somebody telling somebody else they love them. Here's current CEO Wanya Lucas again. If you think about our brand, you know, it is about love, right? And a sense of hope and optimism, which are universal themes, regardless of who you are in this world, which is why I love this brand so much. I haven't worked on a lot of brands like that. Um, and so given who we are, she also promises that no matter what changes take place at Hallmark, at the end of their movies, everything will always work out. This love that today's variety of Hallmarkian masterminds have expressed, no matter how cheesy, how corny, how cliche, and how problematic, is a biological instinct that rivals hunger and thirst, the drive to form something equivalent to a Hallmark small town. The communities we dream of being a part of are certainly very different depending on who we are, but I do think that many of us, surrounded as we are by so much vicious fragmentation, dream of a life at least a little like this. Nothing fancy, a place like Garland, where we have everything we need. Something out of reach for so many different kinds of Americans in both rural and urban areas. Just a place where the town will band together to stop the mega corporations that threaten the community through acts of merry solidarity, wielding the Christmas spirit like a fist. A place where friends and families are no longer torn apart irrevocably by culture wars, where all our griefs and all our disillusionments are settled firmly in the past. A place where we will find new love that will remind us of how it felt when we believed, making us nostalgic 
for the times when it felt like we still could. God, listen to me. I have been watching way too many Hallmark movies. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to support our show and get early ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Another great thing you can do to help our show is to leave us a review on the app that you use. It really helps us out and you could do it right now. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by ClearComo Studios, researched and co-edited by Riley Smith, and co-edited and produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And may none of our family members be Santa, because that sounds really stressful. I hope you have a great week.